Take your Bibles, if you will. Look in the book of Romans. Romans chapter number 6. I did just a little bit this afternoon of checking, see what's going on over there in Israel. Over 600 Israelis are dead. They're saying about 100 have been captured and carried away. The young lady, I found out, the, I didn't see the whole video. I'm glad I didn't. But the young lady that uh, they captured, she was some kind of a Jewish singer or something, I'm not sure, a young girl. She was nude to the waist, face down. Her family identified her by her tattoos and, and some other, something they picked up on. But her legs were at such an angle my guess would be that they'd broken her body apart as they, they did that. God is not pleased by such activity. And anybody's religion that thinks that that's a good thing to do is of the devil. And uh, Israel has declared war on Hamas. And, uh, of course, people are already saying, well, you know, they're going to pick on those poor people. Isn't that amazing? I've already heard congressmen saying that. Well, the Jews are picking on those poor people. Egypt doesn't want them either. There's a place called the Gaza Cross, and they could go into Egypt, but Egypt won't let them come either. They're too warlike. All they want to do is fight and kill one another, and, and then uh, they'll only unite against Israel. And we really need to be praying for Israel and uh, watching that situation. And as we see that, and we think about how cruel those people are when you are godless and you are allowed to, to run wild with your thoughts and actions, that's what you get. And I'm adamantly opposed to Islam. Uh, don't want to hurt any of them. Not interested in that. But I'm real interested in them not hurting us, too. And uh, it's just an awful mess. Uh, that they're doing. Well, Romans chapter 6. I haven't got anything to do with what I'm preaching on tonight other than it's an illustration of what I'm preaching on. I want to bring a message to on our enemy, sin. Uh, in the scriptures, or you, we use uh, the word sin, transgression, trespass, iniquity, all types of words. In theology, it's called harmartiology. Uh, the sinfulness of man, the doctrine of sin. We have theology, the study of God proper, Christology, the study of Christ, uh, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, study of the church, anthropology, the study of, of man's nature, and you do find much of that in the Bible. Then there comes this thing called harmartiology, the, the doctrine of sin. And it's important that you and I get a practical grasp on what sin is and what sin is in our own life. Romans chapter 6, pick up with me in verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. 
Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, if you're not under the law, but under grace. It is important for us to realize when we come before the Lord, like in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that's, uh, those, that's words, that's heart, attitude expressed. God, please forgive me, I've sinned. But actions are supposed to follow that. And so that's where he says, neither yield ye your members as instruments. As we seek God's face to help us with our personal sin, I believe he does give us strength. Probably most of us who are struggling with a besetting sin, we'll talk about those in a minute or two, know exactly what it's like to fight against that thing, to struggle against it, and to know when God's been given us strength, and sometimes we don't avail ourselves of that strength. He offers it, and we go our merry way. We actually have three enemies, four if you want to count our our own personal self, but uh, three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what a triumvirate of uh, uh, enemies they are. They're, they're, They're notable enemies. They're not easily defeated. The lure of the world is hard to let go of. Uh, we're, we're so uh, uh, imbued with it. It's so much a part of our culture. When we visited Jordan and took Ashley with us, Ashley, of course, blonde-headed. By the way, she's going to make us great-grandparents. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, May or June next year. I'm, I'm happy about that, excited. When we took her to Jordan, of course, being blonde, she stuck out like a sore thumb over there. And she's a typical American teenager and so when one of these Arab men would just stare at her, she'd just stare back, like, who are you staring at me? Well, it's a part of their culture, if a man gazes at a woman like that and she gazes back, that that's a come on. I, he, she's open to him approaching her. And, of course, uh, the missionaries very quickly told, told her, said, don't do that. But, see, that's so much a part of their culture, they don't even think about it being odd. We think it's odd. And, by the way, it is odd. <laughs> but it's so much a part of their culture, they, they don't even think of it or see it that way. And so uh, we live in a, a world that is imbued with sin. It's so much a part of, of things around us that until the Spirit of God gives us enlightenment, we just don't see it. We just don't see it. It's easy to get self-centered in America. Everything you want is done your way. You can order a car with every single piece on it that you want. I want it to do this, I want that in there, this in there, that in there, this color, that. You know, they'll do that. They'll just keep writing the figures up, but they'll, uh, they'll give you what you want. Uh, we go to the store, we buy what we want. We're not told what to buy, we buy what we want. We go to the restaurant, we order what we want. My wife likes steaks, well done. Please pray for her. I like a medium rare. And so we kind of compromise and get medium well, and she cuts the edges off and eats the edges, and I eat the rest. But we're, we're used to getting things our way, focusing on us. We even hear advertisements, have it your way, you deserve a break today, and all kinds of things like that that are self-focused, and if we're not careful, that will bleed over into how we look at ourselves about everything 
because we're so focused on self. In this message where tonight I'm only going to deal with just one of these enemies, I'm going to talk about what sin does to us and why we have it. Uh, why we have it, it's easy to explain. We're born with it. Uh, if you're interested, there are a couple of positions on that. I'm an immediate creationist. In other words, I believe that, the, that God creates the soul at the moment of conception. Uh, there are those who are traducian. Don't you like all these big theological words? And they believe that the soul, the, the life, is passed from the parents to the child and uh, that that's where the soul comes from. I believe God creates it at, at conception. Habits of life. Habits of life. We build habits by doing the same thing over and over and over. You ever seen somebody who could take a hammer, and I mean they could drive nails. They could pop them like this, just go and go and go. And if you try it, you'd beat your hand to a pulp. Why? They have muscle memory. They've practiced that. They know what they're doing. Uh, and firearms instructors, they teach those that are being instructed to, to develop muscle memory, which is where you, you bring your weapon up and point it. You bring it up and point it all the time, and you develop muscle memory. Uh, and it doesn't matter how fast you do it or not because you'll get faster and faster automatically because of muscle memory. Same thing with typing. I still look at the keyboard most of the time, not always, but most of the time I'm looking at the keyboard. We were taught not to do that. You were taught just what? Muscle memory. Figure these things out. Those are habits. And once you've developed them, they are, should be more or less a permanent part of you. Well, there's a problem. We practice the same sin over and over and over and over again. Look in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, towards the end of the book. Hebrews chapter number 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now he's referring back to the cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. I don't know how much people in heaven see what's going on down here on earth. I do know that there's a couple of times in the Bible where they do see. One's in Revelation chapter number 19, one's in Luke chapter 16, and those are, I think, the exception, not the norm. But perhaps God does allow our loved ones in heaven to see important events, like maybe when you get converted, or maybe when you get baptized. Or perhaps my grandfather was allowed to see me the first time I preached. I don't, I don't know all those things are possibilities, but those are weemsologies. I can't give you any uh, strong text of Scripture, but it does say we're compassed about so great a cloud of witnesses, and it has to be talking about those who've already gone on before and perhaps those who are living around us at the time. So let us lay aside what? Every weight... Now, weights are things that are not sinful in themselves, but they injure or hinder or restrict our growth in spirituality. I've used the illustration many times when I was in Bible college. Uh, the, one of the head cheerleaders came in and resigned, told the dean of the school, so I've got to resign. And she was a cheerleader at a Christian school, so she was covered up. It wasn't like she had one of them dinky dresses on or uh, out there in yoga pants, out there in front of everybody. She was decently covered. But 
She said, it's taking too much time. It's causing me to focus on me, and I need to give this time to God. That's a young 16-year-old girl. So she gave that up. That, and to her, that was a weight. I'm not saying it's a weight to everybody. It was a weight to her. And weights, just like besetting sins, are not always the same from one individual to the next. So we lay aside every weight, things that are not sinful, but they just get to be a problem. And the sin which doth what? So easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. If I were to have to give you a definition of what besetting sin is, I think probably the main thought there is unbelief. Because that was the problem in chapter 11. People didn't believe. So probably the greatest besetting sin that you and I have is that our faith falters and, and shakes at different times. It's the candle isn't always burning as bright as it is at other times. We have difficulties. But I think we can also apply this word besetting is to be the things that we just seemingly can't get over. We thought we had, we thought we'd conquered them, we thought we'd put them behind us. It was six months ago, you know, the last time we did it, or a year ago, or six weeks ago, and before we know it, we're doing it again. That sin that just keeps popping up, those, that kind of sin causes grief. I mean, it causes grief. You know, I don't need to mention what we call big sins, because I, I'm not worried about you going out and robbing a bank tonight. Of course, the banks are closed, so it would be difficult, but I guess you could break in one. I'm not really worried about you stealing somebody's car. Uh, drunkenness, drug abuse, those are easily seen faults. Immorality, stealing, cussing. If you want people to think you're not a Christian, just cut loose cussing. Peter tried it, and it worked for him. And they said, uh, he said, I know not the man. And they said, well, wait a minute. And he went and began to curse, the Bible said, I know not the man. Those are things that are outward, easy to see, those types of what we would call may, maybe big sins. But I want us to think about those inside secret sins. We talked about that some in Sunday school class this morning. Lust. You know, it used to be that that was mainly a male thing. It's not anymore. They have play girl now just like they have play boy. It's got to be an appetite for that for them to have produced the magazine. What are we reading? What are we watching? What are we thinking? See, nobody around us knows that. That, that brain can be whirling this Gray matter we call brain can be whirling around with all kinds of stuff going on in there. and Nobody else picks up on it in particular, but it's a problem. It's a sin inside of us. What does the Bible say about that? We're to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How about envy? Jealousy. We used to be talking about she's green with envy. You ever heard that terminology? She's green with envy. That's seeing somebody else and thinking, I wished I had what they've got, or I, I should have gotten what they've got, or I should have been blessed like they've been blessed. Envy and jealousy. Covetousness. The Bible says, which is idolatry. 
That's what the Bible calls it. Covetousness is seeing something that somebody else has, and you want it so bad you might try to figure out a way to get it. You say, oh, I would never do that, Pastor. You might up here. You might think it through. You might not do it. You say, I'd never do that, but you think about it. Bitterness. Husbands, love your wives and be not what? Not bitter against them. Oh, I'd never be bitter against my wife. Oh, yeah. God made a mistake when he put that in the Bible, didn't he? Men do get bitter. We get the poochy lip. I was speaking at a men's conference one time, and I brought that up, and they'd never heard it. I thought the whole place was going to just fall apart with them laughing. One guy came up and said, man, I've never heard that poochy lip. He said, I'm going to use that one. I said, fine, help yourself. But sometimes a wife doesn't do exactly what the husband wants, and he's dissatisfied, and he knows he can't say anything about it, or, or maybe he does say something, and he just gets a poochy lip. It's called bitterness. But women can be bitter as well. Perhaps you've been mistreated, ill-spoken to. Something else come in your life, and you get bitter about that. You know what the Bible says about bitterness? that it will defile many others. We're supposed to be careful about it. Look in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 verse 14. Follow peace with all men, not just the ones you like, but all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Then verse 15. Looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. If you get bitter, you're going to make an impact on people around you, and it will be a negative impact. Don't be bitter. If life has dealt you a hand that you, you think, I, I never thought this would happen to me, I never dreamed this would take place, I never thought about this, understand that you're not the first person to go through that. And do not allow it to embitter you. Take it to the Lord. And if you're getting bitter, tell Him. God already knows, but you're not going to surprise Him by telling Him that you're getting bitter over something in your life. Ever have a kid disobey you? If you had kids, you have. <laughs> but sometimes we don't like the choices they make and we get bitter. We get upset with God. Why my kids? I did right. I served God. I was faithful. Why is this happening to me? And if we're not careful, we get bitter over such things. Our thoughts begin to be negative thoughts. Every last one of us has somebody we're praying for to be saved that's in our family. You are not alone. You are not alone. Here's another thing that secret sin. A lack of forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is terribly important. If you intend for your marriage to last, you're going to have to learn to be forgiving. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And how does God forgive? Totally. Totally. Now, here's a, a, a difference between us when we, get, we forgive. 
Let's say that Lance and I get mad at each other, and I decide I'm going to poke him in the nose. I find a ladder somewhere and climb up on it. Get me a poke there, you know. He kicks me off the ladder and stomps on me a while, and I bite his legs and pull his hair and all that. You know, men can do that and, and forgive and be the best of friends afterwards. But if we're not careful, we'll develop a, a lack of forgiveness. We're supposed to forgive totally. He might not ever forget I punched him in the nose. And I might not ever forget he kicked me off the ladder. God forgives by choosing not to remember our sins against us. It's not that God can just forget, you know, when things go out into the erythrial universe, because that can't happen. God knows everything. So God chooses to put that sin behind his back, meaning he won't look at it anymore. That's the way you and I are supposed to give, forgive one another, whether it's our friends that are of the same gender, amen, or friends of the other gender. There's only two, amen, male and female. And if you're going to make your marriage work, you're going to have to learn how to forgive because we're not perfect. You, got, you take two sinners with different backgrounds, different lives, different wants, different likes, and you put them together, and you have created a, a, a chance for friction to take place. It always takes a little while to adjust to being married. It's one thing to go out on a date, you know, once or twice a week for a period of time. Then it's something altogether when you walk up the aisle, and you say, I do, and you walk back down the aisle. And when you wake up six weeks from now, they're still there. In all of their wondrous glory, the socks, one sock's thrown that way, another sock's thrown that way, and the T-shirt's over here, and the shoes are not in the same place. How many of you guys ever had your wife get on to you about how you leave your clothes? Come on, get them hands up there. I want to see it. Yeah. Can't you put them, in, and you go, can't you pick them up? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is an important thing. There is power in forgiveness. When I think about forgiveness, I usually go back to the book of Job. Job lost everything he had. He buried ten children. He lost his health. He lost his reputation in the community. He lost his three best friends, at least for a period of time. And his wife just gave up, threw up the hand, said, why don't you just curse God and die, Job? She couldn't take any more. She'd reached the end. And he said, you speak like a foolish woman. And he wasn't being mean. But you read through the rest of the book of Job, and they accused him of every kind of sin you can imagine. And when we get to chapter 42, Job is, is being blessed again, and his three friends... <laughs> They are told, you need to go ask Job to pray for you because you have said the thing that's not right about me. That's God speaking to him. And the implication in the scripture is that if you don't get right, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take you out of here. Now, here's the man who buried 10 children, whose body was probably scarred from the disease that he had, who had been laughed at and joked at by the bums of the, of the town in which he lived. He's gone through all of that, and his three friends accuse him of being unfaithful, of being uh, a thief. 
He stole from widows and orphans. I mean, you just go through and read the book of Job. And they had to come, Job, would you pray for us? And Job did that. When he did, God turned everything over for him and began to honor him and bless him and build him. The power of forgiveness. What an example Job is in the Bible. What an example. As far as I know, Job never found out why God did all those things till he got to heaven. Because I don't find recorded in the Word of God anywhere why God or what God told him about what he was doing or why he was doing things. So lack of forgiveness. If you're an unforgiving person, you're an unspiritual person. You will never be more spiritual than you are forgiving. It's a part of who we are. And we have to develop that. If you want your children to apologize, set the example. If you did something wrong, apologize to them. That doesn't demean you. It teaches them how to respond when they do something wrong. Well, let's talk about sin a little bit more. Sin is an intruder. It doesn't belong. But it breaks in anyway. I understand we're born with a sinful nature. But God never intended for us to live in a sin-cursed world. It was God's perfect plan for us to live in what He created for Adam and Eve. Now, God wasn't taken by surprise. God knew all that. And way before the foundation of the earth, whenever you could measure that, Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. But sin's an intruder. It broke in. And it'll break in on you at the worst times. I remember a fellow telling me one time, you can't pray and sin at the same time. I found out he was wrong. You can. We are capable of sinning at any moment. It's inside of us. But it breaks in, and, and it breaks in at, at maybe the most unusual times. Remember Elijah? He'd been on Mount Carmel, and man... Uh, they hadn't rained in three and a half years, and he called the fire down from heaven. They killed 850 of the false prophets. He prayed, and he said, there's a little cloud coming out of the water like the size of a man's fist. And he said, take off running, rain's coming. And uh, Elijah ran all the way back to Jezreel and beat the chariots there. He's on the mountaintop. Men, we're going to have revival. Things are, people are going to get right with God. They've already shouted that the Lord, He is God. And Jezebel said, in 24 hours or less, I'll have your head taken off. What did he do? He ran off and hid. 850 men couldn't run him off, but one woman did. Of course, she had position and power. And he ran off and he hid in the cave. Sin broke in at a high point in his life. Can I say this to you? The devil watches for opportunities to attack us. He really does. And don't think when you've had a spiritual blessing that you are immune to having any other troubles. You're not. Sin is not only an intruder, but it's an invader. It invades with the idea of destruction. Destruction. Sin wants to destroy us. I, I'm, I'm personalizing sin or personifying sin, I guess is the term to use. But sin is bent on our destruction. Satan and our flesh will, 
will conspire against us and they will do that which is not good for us. They'll promise that it is, but it's not. Sin is an adversary. It's opposed to our goodness. Sin takes us hostage and defiles us while it flourishes. What does sin do to us? What kind of effects does it have? Well, in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says that we've offended God to where He won't hear us and won't reach out to us. It, sin will dull us and it will take away our edge, removes our joy. It does that to us. Uh, you know when you're in fellowship with the Lord, you've been reading your Bible, you've been praying, you've been doing what you ought to do, been faithful to church, and I mean things are going well spiritually, and you, you just seem to think, well, well, I'm doing good, my spiritual life is moving along. We need to remember what First John said, don't, don't think that you have no sin because it's still there. But sin begins to creep up and we get dull. We hadn't thrown the knife down, we hadn't given up the sword, but the edge has been knocked off and we're just not sharp anymore. Sin deadens us. To me, this is maybe the worst. There is no more lonely place than a pulpit when God's not here. That's the loneliest place you can be. Pastor Taylor knows. Pastor Jacob knows. We're not always as spiritual as we want to be. Brother Guy mentioned that. And yet our duty, our responsibility, and when we're deadened, when it seems like we're praying and the walls and the ceilings are all made out of brass and we can't hear from heaven, it's terrible. If that doesn't bother you, then I don't know what to tell you. The deadening effect of sin, it not just dulls us, it, it deadens us to where we become insensitive. Sin no longer looks so bad. It's because we're walking among it. Do you remember in the book of 1 John, he talked about walking in the darkness? And then we talked about the darkness being in us. It's not the idea that we can walk and pick and choose while we're in darkness. It's so dark, we don't know what we're picking and choosing. That's what sin is like. Sin deadens us. They tell me, I don't know how they figured it out, but they say it takes 10 times more effort to get somebody who's fallen out of church back into church than it is to just go get somebody that's never been. That deadening effect of sin and the shame of trying to approach God keeps many a person wrapped up and pushed down. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I understand that uh, that's a text about salvation. But the fact of the matter is, it still deadens us as Christians. Third thing, it disrupts. Our spiritual life ceases to move forward. Uh, listen, you, you can't tread water in the Christian life. You're either moving forward or going backwards. There's no in-between. Psalm 32, I believe Pastor Taylor preached from this not too long ago. 
Psalm 32, I want to read a couple of verses. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Ponder that. Think about it. Sin disrupts our spiritual life. God is not pleased by sin in our life. And when we come to the Lord's table for communion, at that time, maybe the Lord will put His hand on something in your life, and you're supposed to confess it right then. You don't have to make a big deal out of it and go before the church or anything. You just you do business with God. There's a sanctifying grace involved with the Lord's Supper. It disrupts us. Number four, sin disturbs our life. Remember I talked about that bitterness? You know what else happens? Anger. Anger. When a man's out of sorts with God, he's angry. He's frustrated. He knows he's not right with God. He's not willing to get right. He knows he's not right with God, and yet this going on, that's going on in his life. And so there's a, a disturbance in the family. It, it begins to infiltrate our family and even our friends' relationships with us. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, at the time when the kings went forth to war, David stayed home. wonder why he stayed home. I am of the opinion that David had seen Bathsheba bathing more than once. And maybe he stayed home. I'll get to see her again. I'll get to put my eyes on that. But it had gotten so far that he didn't just put eyes on her. He put his hands on her. It cost him. It cost him big time. The child died. Of course, the baby went to heaven. But he was told by the prophet, the sword shall not depart from thine house. Amnon, his oldest, rapes Tamar. And David does nothing. Why? He'd lost his moral authority. He didn't feel like he could do anything because he'd been guilty of very similar sin himself. I want to tell you, sin will disturb your life. Anger. You say, well, how do you know David was angry? Easy. Nathan said, there was a rich man who had somebody come to his house. He had a big flock. And then there was this poor man that had one little ewe lamb that he had raised just like a puppy, raised like one of his children in his own home. And the rich man sent and took that one. What did David say? He jumped up. That man's going to restore fourfold and we're going to kill him. That's unbiblical. You didn't kill people for stealing sheep. You don't find that in the Bible. David was angry. Angry. And when he got a chance, he let it just pour out of him. And when you get out of sorts with God and sin begins to disturb your life, anger will pour out of you. Number five, sin destroys. It destroys those who refuse to oust it from the throne room of their soul. Look with me in the book of 2 Kings. 
Second Kings. We don't do much in the historical books. That and the minor prophets. I start saying that song we sang was a, like the minor prophets. We don't know a whole lot about them. Second Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And Elisha said unto him, this is uh, Hazael asking, is Ben-Hadad king of Syria going to recover? And Elisha said unto him, go say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. And the way he died was this guy got a wet cloth, heavy cloth put on his face and suffocated him. And he, the prophet, settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and will dash their children, that meant to grab them by their ankles, and break their heads open on stone walls, that's what they did, and rip up their women with child. And Hazael said, But what? Is thy servant a dead dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a fella that sin got such a grip on, he did exactly what he said I'd never do. Some of y'all might remember Dr. Russell Rice preaching a sermon here in our old church on I'd never do that. This is one of them. He said, I'd never do that, but he did. Why? Sin got a hold of him. You can't handle sin. It's stronger than you are. It's smarter than you are. You can't out-wrestle the devil. Matter of fact, if you focus all the time, and I realize I'm putting a lot of focus tonight on sin, but if you focus on your sinfulness all the time, you're neglecting your spiritual life. The best way to defeat your flesh is to feed your spirit. Grow the new man. Choke the old man. Starve him to death. Cockroaches, they tell me, can live on the glue that holds cardboard together and, and the dew that gathers on grass. It doesn't take much to keep your sin nature churning along. It doesn't take much. Number six, it dooms its practitioners. It dooms its practitioners. There's some folks who are so wrapped up in sin, they may think they're saved, but... They're not. Let me read to you from the scriptures. Romans 1. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. Now that's very plainly teaching that homosexuality, lesbianism is wrong. Very plain. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, verse 28, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, 
deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. My goodness, what a list. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We're not supposed to be a part of this crowd. This isn't, we don't belong to this group. But when we allow sin to dominate in our life, we're holding hands with them. We're walking in the darkness with them. Doesn't mean that we're dark, ultimately, but it means that we're doing the wrong thing. God's of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And what that means is, it's not that God doesn't see it, it means that God does not look with approval on sin. America is eyeball deep in national sin. We have the, the folks with their gay pride parades. If you haven't seen any of the videos, it's up to you to look or not. Some of them are nude, some semi-nude, holding up very vulgar signs in reference to God. And parents take their kids out there to, to watch that take place. And I shake my head and say, what in the world happened to us? Well, sin's crept in. Now it's breaking out. And if you and I are not careful, sin will creep in on us. Well, I can watch this. It's not too bad. We watch that, then we can watch something else. Then we can watch something else. And pornography, fellas, let me tell you this. They tell me a large percentage of men have some trouble with pornography. Pornography is an endless pit. It promises much and delivers absolutely nothing. And yet our country's rife with it. We're one of the biggest purveyors of it. We're one of the biggest producers of it. Sin's destructive. I'd never do that. You didn't start out that way. But sin will drag you down. Sin defiles the believer's heart, mind, and soul. We don't want to do that. What am I going to do, preacher? You've preached me into a corner. Well, if the Lord's backed you into a corner, this is what you need to do. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just forgive you, forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what's gone through my mind. I don't have to know. I serve a God who does. And he'll forgive you. Oh, but I've, I, I did so and so. I got involved with this and I'm so ashamed. Forgiveness. He'll put it behind his back. Put it in the depths of the sea. Never to be remembered against you anymore. People may not forgive you, but I know somebody who will. And he's the one that counts. Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one's looking about. I realized tonight was not a tasty message. I'd rather not preach messages like this. But I'd be unfaithful to you if I didn't. Perhaps you're wrestling with something in your life, and aren't we all? 
some particular besetting sin, would you confess it to the Lord tonight? Let him help you. You say, but I feel so hypocritical. I've asked so many times. I know how you feel. Been there, done that myself. But he wants us to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And look for that strength. He'll send reinforcements. He'll help you. Father, help thy children tonight. We have an enemy. And it's an enemy inside our own camp. It's called sin. Would you give your servants grace tonight to overcome? I pray it in Christ's name. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's just stand to our feet.